So hello and welcome back to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Karen Allenspach, who is an Associate Professor and Reader in Internal Medicine here at the Queen Mother Hospital for Animals and also Head of the Clinical Investigation Centre at the RVC. Um, Karen has a particular interest in gastroenterology and her main research interest is in canine inflammatory bowel disease that we will talk about later on towards the end of the podcast. So thanks very much for joining me today, Karen. Um, so what I would like to do today is to talk about the approach to a dog that presents with a history of chronic intermittent gastrointestinal signs. So I think that's a sort of presentation in first opinion practice that's pretty common and, and in referral practice too. Um, and I'm kind of thinking about the sort of dog that has a little bit of vomiting, but mostly diarrhea. Um, and for the purposes of this podcast, I thought what we would do would be to take the kind of scenario in which, you know, we're in first opinion practice. And this is the first time this dog is being seen for these signs. So it's kind of a clean slate, if you like. Um, but before we do that, I wondered if you could just give us a reminder of, kind of in simple, in simple terms, the, um, the kind of pathophysiology behind vomiting and diarrhea. So basically, what needs to be happening in the body for these problems to occur? In simple, <laughs> simple terms, yeah, if you can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, good question. So... Um, I think how I try to think about it is that there's two big categories um, of causes for chronic vomiting and diarrhea, and it's really either extra gastrointestinal or intestinal, and I think that um, is usually how I approach it. And so for chronic, it needs to be present for at least three weeks um, or intermittently for longer. Um, And so that's the definition of it. Um, And then usually that also means that it hasn't gone away with symptomatic treatment in acute cases as well. And then... Um, what you try to do is sort of remember what kind of pathways lead to vomiting or diarrhea, and that really means what kind of organs could be affected. And so going back again to that extra gastrointestinal versus intestinal. And so what you then try to do, and we're going to get to the workup, obviously, um, is to try and exclude any, any gas. Ex, I'm sorry, any extra gastrointestinal causes first before you concentrate on the intestinal causes because that would mean further workup. Sure, and so with the extra gastrointestinal, so they can actually cause chronic intermittent GI signs? Yes, absolutely. So some diseases like renal disease, um, some endocrine diseases like Addison's in dogs, um, pancreatitis, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, liver disease, these sorts of uh, things cause vomiting and diarrhea, hypothyroidism in cats, for example, as well. So these sort of things are always good to exclude before you actually concentrate on intestinal diseases. Cool. And so you find that that classification is quite a, a useful way of kind of guiding your clinical, your clinical thoughts. Um, actually, when you mentioned the pancreas there, what, one of the things I'm always is, is, what is the pancreas part of? So I tend to say it's not gastrointestinal, but it's alimentary. But I don't know, what, what, what's your answer to where does the pancreas Yes, absolutely. In? It's a difficult <laughs> one. I, I don't think it matters much. You just need to make sure you don't forget about it. I mean, some people say it is gastrointestinal, some people say it's extra gastrointestinal, but I think important is to think about the two diseases that you get from the exocrine pancreas, like exocrine pancreatic insufficiency or pancreatitis, and mm-hmm. just check whether that would be something that you would include in your differential diagnosis list. You've just given me a great idea for another podcast, I think, actually, because <laughs> especially also with ECC, we, we see some of the you know some of the bad ones, and, we, and there's often a lot of... Um, What's the word? I had a great word for this. Interface between medicine and ECC with pancreatitis cases and stuff. So I think that's, uh, that's one for, for a future podcast. Okay, great. So if we go back to this um, hypothetical dog that has a history of chronic intermittent GI signs um, and, as I said, mainly you know uh, diarrhea but a little bit of vomiting, um, does the signament of the patient have any bearing on the kinds of thoughts that will go, be going through your head right from the outset? So, you know, in practice, person sees what's next on their consult list and they see the signament of the patient and when they're getting them in and so on, are there thoughts that are going through your head at that time thinking, well, 
I've got a, I don't know, three-year-old German Shepherd or whatever in front of me. What sort of thoughts are going to go through your head? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's like with every clinical case, I guess, um, with more and more experience, you're going to try and um, categorize your um, your patients um, with the clinical signs. And, and you're absolutely right. Some of the... Um, some of the breeds that you see can have predispositions for certain diseases. Exocrine pancreatic insufficiency in young German Shepherds would be one of the classic. Um, I guess older dogs can have um, some sort of tumours. Um, when we're talking specifically about inflammatory bowel disease, there's obviously some breeds that are predisposed that um, we've also looked at at the RVC um, with some of the retrospective studies. So German Shepherds are one of the breeds that we see more commonly boxers, soft-coated Wheaton Terriers, Weimaraners. So there's there's definitely some breeds that will make you think um, there's potentially specific diseases associated with it. Um, but then I think... Um, you know, you're, you're still going to go back and do your general physical mm. exam, general history taking, and then probably with a chronic GI case, you're going to try and get some more information about whether it could be large or small intestinal or mixed, and that will be important for your differential diagnosis list as well as um, potentially for further workup um, later on. So if you're going to go and, and take biopsies, for example, it's really good to know what the localization of the disease is. And so those are the specific questions that you're usually going to um, try and get some information from the owner right from the start. And that's actually, I think, even in, in private practice, even if you're not going to go ahead and do an extensive workup, mm. I think that kind of basic information is really important because you can always go back to it. You can see also how badly the dog was affected and it will give you a baseline of what's going on while you the then yeah, start I guess doing one of the, um, Actually, there's two questions I want to ask you. Um, the second was, I guess that's one of the challenges as well, and um, when you have these sort of cases that might be coming back multiple times, um, is having the consistency of information so that you get this, the correct information transmitted, you know, if it, especially if it's a different vet that sees the case, that this, this information that's very important is not lost yeah. in, in communication. But the other thing I wanted to ask you is, <clears throat> with... with um, I don't mean this to sound like all your years of experience, like you're really old or anything, but with all your years of experience, how often are you surprised with the diagnosis that you make in a patient that you think is probably X and it turns out to be Y? Oh, that's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> Not specifically. I mean, but. I mean, we work in a, in a referral situation and sometimes it's a secondary or tertiary referral information and, and you do get surprises. And so it's one of the things that, um, you know, even with more and more experience, you try, especially as a specialist, I think, but even in private practice, mm. you should try and keep open-minded. And so it, it, it's, you know, it makes sense to pattern recognize, but it shouldn't obviously completely guide you um, and to lead you to exclude, you know, certain causes, basically. So it's always good to still have your differential diagnosis list in mind and just check off what's possible and what not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that whole um, that whole pattern spotting is is a really interesting topic. We won't we won't take the can uh, the lid off the can of worms right now, but I do I do think it's a it's a really interesting topic. Also, um, I think it depends on the individual patient, your particular service, you know, whether they're emergency, non-emergency, that kind of stuff. So. Um, so you did sort of mention it already, but I guess if you don't mind, we'll just, we'll just revisit the, uh, the issue of what important sort of historical questions. Mm -hmm. um, I was, when I, when I was thinking about running with, with this podcast, I was thinking about actually doing this in a real case scenario. And I was like, you ask me questions, I'll give you answers. But then I realized that this could be, this could be very open-ended. So, <laughs> so just in general terms, um, you know, what are the kind of important uh, pieces of information that you want to get from an owner that, that you would kind of consider... I guess, essential core information with one of these cases from the outset? Yeah, I think important is going to be to ask um, about the diarrhea and or vomiting itself. So what exactly did the owner see? Are you sure it actually is vomiting and not regurgitation? Um, so is it associated with abdominal effort is probably the most important thing that people will recognize, these sorts of things. So that will define whether you're actually dealing with vomiting or not, so refining it basically. And then um, with diarrhea, it's a bit more obvious, and that's usually not mistaken by anything um, from the owners. But there you still want to ask about volume, whether there's mucus, whether there's fresh blood or Melina, um, frequency, tenesmus, whether there's weight loss, um, these sorts of things can give you a lot of information regarding possible 
um, location. So is it small intestinal, large intestinal or both? Um, and also the appetite, I think, is very important with that as well. And what I include for chronic diarrhea ki- cases is um, a dietary history. So what have they been on? Um, if that you know can be taken completely, probably not in ten minutes in <laughs> private practice, but it's a really important thing because uh, you know many of these cases, if they do turn out to be some sort of IBD, actually need to go on a restriction diet of sort, and so then that comes in handy because it will tell you a little bit in which direction you can go. And I think um, a dewarming history is always um, a good thing as well, so that you don't need to start from scratch with that. Um, so there's three things, if I can remember them, uh, when I was listening to you then. The first is, uh, when we have this thing about sort of trying to make sure that we understand whether dogs are vomiting or having regurgitation, I, I, think, I think I might at some point invest in some kind of video or something that demonstrates a dog vomiting. Because I, I guess from an owner's point of view, it, it may sometimes be difficult to actually be able to, to give you a straight answer as to what they think is going on. Um, but the, the other question I had was, with this sort of classification of diarrhoea, um, do you find that that's generally that patients generally have one form or the other? How often do you think? Well, there's sort of characteristics of both there, and along those lines, what is really watery, but also hemorrhagic diarrhea? Like <laughs> these cases that have just got bloody watery diarrhea, and I'm like, where is that fit? <laughs> well, you're biased in ECC, I think. Um, I don't think we see hemorrhagic gastroenteritis so commonly in our chronic GI cases. They're usually more watery, um, and there might be some blood, um, but then it's you know it's the classic colitis signs. Um, but you're right, you know some of them will just have bouts of HGE um, or hemorrhagic gastroenteritis, which we also think is idiopathic because you know there's not really any kind of classification as to what's causing it, um, and those can be difficult um, to actually say you know what. Are they? And then I usually just say mixed. mixed yeah. <laughs> and um, and for example, imaging such as um, abdominal ultrasound might help to actually then narrow it down or say um, is it small intestinal or large intestinal or both. And uh, my last thing was, I guess, not really a question so much as a, as an observation, but I think your, your point that you made about taking the history that you need in a ten minute consult, um, I guess that's part of the challenge, isn't it? And I and I, I suppose you sort of wonder whether. There will, be a, there will be a rationale sometimes with a case like this of saying, actually, can we book you a 30-minute appointment some other time to do this properly in a way? I, I don't know, but I guess it, there is, you said, there's a lot of information to take, isn't it? We have the luxury in our referral service of having, I guess, more time. Yeah. Um, but I guess we can see the, the challenges of, of practice. Um, so if we move on, so we've got the signalment, and that's kind of giving us some thoughts in our head. We've taken a history from the owner and tried to get some information that's helping us to sort of think about which you know, what we think is going on in terms of extra gastrointestinal or gastrointestinal and the type of diarrhea and so on. Um, are there things when you, do an, when you do a physical examination on the patient, are there things that you might find that will help you to kind of further refine, you know, the thoughts that are going on in your head? Yeah, absolutely. Um, with chronic diarrhea cases, most of the time it will actually be completely normal, your physical exam. But one of the things definitely um, to look a bit more specifically is probably weight loss. Sometimes that's not something that the owners will say by themselves. And it's a good idea if there's any record, especially if you've seen the patient yeah. in prior <clears throat> practice, you're probably better off than us most of the time. Um, you know, whether you know whether the dog's lost weight and over what period of time, that's really helpful information. And then obviously abdominal palpation, I think, is important to see if you find any masses or any structures that are abnormal. But otherwise, most of the time, actually, unfortunately, with chronic diarrhea cases, it's not very informative, I guess, physical okay. exam. Um, and then, you know, I realise it's a bit tricky talking about this in the way that we are because I'm kind of trying to lump together a wide variety of presentations um, but can you then explain sort of what your next steps might be, what you might be discussing with the dog's carer about, you know, um, what you think should be done next? And, and, and I guess this is a sort of an integration of the signalment, the history, the physical exam, etc., cetera, um, in terms of coming up with those recommendations. But, yeah, if you could help us to understand better about what might be considered rational recommendations, that would be great. Yeah. Um, 
So further work of chronic diarrhea cases can be quite extensive and can also be quite costly, therefore. So it's one of the things to discuss early on with the clients. And as you said before, you know, these are the things that you really want to have a little bit more time um, to discuss with the client. So actually booking maybe a little bit of a longer appointment is not a bad idea mm. in these cases. And just um, think about um, financial implications and also what kind of... Um, time commitment in the long run actually the, the owner will have to give to a workup and or you know treatment of a disease like IBD for example um, but the usual workup that I do is, is I go back to my history and I try to figure out um, how much of a deworming history can I trust or do I need to do that again or do I need to perform a faecal exam just to get that out of my mind for parasitology at least um, and then the next step will probably be to do some blood work, urinalysis um, to try and rule out your extra gastrointestinal causes before you go any further. Okay. Um, so, and what I usually include with that is, you know, if, if you want, looking at some pancreatic things as well. So, running a trypsin-like immunoreactivity, uh, maybe a pancreatic lipase, something like that. Um, and cobalamin actually, I think, is very useful. <laughs> I'm just smiling because that's something that on ECC, I think. I could, well, yeah. okay, I speak for myself, not yeah. not the service, but. Yeah. I probably have no clue about cobalamin at all. Sometimes I even forget what the test is called. Yes, so, so cobalamin is, um, I know, it, it doesn't sound like it, but it's really important because there's lots of papers have um, come out recently showing that it's associated with chronic GI disease in dogs okay. and cats. In many cases, in cats up to 80%, wow. depending on what, what study you look at. Um, is, that, is that a low serum or a consequence? Well, it's probably... Um, both to a degree, but it, it definitely tells you that there's something wrong um, at the site where cobalamin is absorbed, which is the ileum. Okay. And so in many diffuse small intestinal GI diseases, um, or um, you know, if just the ileum is affected, then you'll have that low. And so that's one of the things that's actually also been shown to be associated with bad outcome. So many of the dogs and cats that have very low cobalamin concentrations don't do very well and get euthanized sooner. However, um, it's also good news about this, obviously, because you can supplement it, obviously. And it's one of the things that I would actually recommend doing in almost any cat, whether you know the serum concentration or not, if they come with chronic diarrhea. Wow, you see, one of the things about this podcast, I say that for other people, but I always learn something too. Um, but uh, we, we, uh, it would be interesting to ask you more, another question about this cobalamin thing. So when you're saying you can supplement it, are we saying then that we think that there's evidence that it's actual having low cobalamin that is harmful rather than it just being a sort of symptom, if you like, of the GI disease? So yes, absolutely. I mean, there's evidence, especially from papers looking at cats, um, that if you don't supplement cobalamin, then their underlying GI disease will not get better, whatever oh. you do about it. So whether that's IBD or lymphoma, um, sometimes actually they won't get better unless you supplement cobalamin. So it's a really important thing to do. See, I've learned something astounding. Excellent. Um, <laughs> and how do we supplement cobalamin? I guess that's the obvious question so I the, should ask. Yeah, usually what we do is subcutaneous injections. Um, you already know that you're dealing with... Um, an animal that has a problem absorbing enough cobalamin. So um, that's why, you know, most people will give it parenterally. There's just been an abstract at ACIM actually looking at oral cobalamin supplementation, and mm -hmm. that seems to work to a degree as well. It's not quite as good probably, and you probably have to give it longer and more. But that works as well if the, there's a cut that you can't give it. <laughs> sub -cut, yeah, and with the subcut then, is that something that they would continue at home or...? They can do, of course, yeah, exactly. I mean, some people are not so comfortable with doing that and they will just come back to the, the practice and do it with okay, the nurses or someone. Um, the only problem with cobalamin is that it stings and so um, that could be a, a bit of a problem doing it at home depending on your cat's yeah, yeah. temper. And um, is it a daily therapy or weekly therapy? Weekly, weekly therapy? yeah, okay. weekly and we usually do six weeks and then we check again. Wow. See, um, <laughs> give me a moment because I'm just absorbing this. <laughs> Excellent. So, um, so uh, I took you off on a tangent about cobalamin, which is great. Um, so, we, you were saying about the tests that, that yep. you would do, and mm -hmm. um, we were sort of on blood tests, and cobalamin is where, yep. we, is where we stopped. Mm -hmm. um, what, what else? Yeah, I think once, once you've got your blood work and your analysis, 
back and you feel relatively confident that there's no pancreatic disease involved, then my next step is usually imaging of sorts. If you have chronic vomiting, then you know some people will say an abdominal x-ray is still indicated because partial obstruction sometimes is easier to see on an x-ray than on abdominal ultrasound. I guess that depends on who does your ultrasound as well. Um, we usually skip that, I have to say, because our images are very good. <laughs> So, but so abdominal if you're in, if you're in practice and you don't have yeah. access to yeah. abdominal sonography in a way that would be needed yeah. here, then you would recommend taking an abdominal radiograph even though it may be relatively low yield in terms of abnormalities? Yeah, well, I think if it's chronic vomiting, then um, there's an indication to do that, absolutely. I think with chronic diarrhoea, you you won't gain much on an abdominal x-ray because it will just show you that it's fluid-filled, which you basically knew beforehand. Yeah. And so with the abdominal ultrasound, that will give you some kind of overview about the other organs as well. So you can check whether there's any disease that you might not have seen or might not have shown up on the blood work. And then hopefully that will give you some information on whether the large intestine or or small intestine is affected or both. And if there's focal disease, then that's an important information to have as well. Because if you then want to go on and actually investigate intestinal causes of disease and you want to go maybe do endoscopy or even laparoscopy, laparotomy, then I think it's really important to know whether you're going to be able to reach it mm-hmm. or, you know, even if it's a mass or something like that, you might make another decision and actually go to surgery altogether. Um, so a couple of questions. One is, um, again, something I know <laughs> very little about, but in terms of deworming and, and sort of how often worms are implicated, <laughs> do we have any data about that? And is it, is it really a, a signum and age thing? Or is it, you know, like, are there any information about the parasites, <laughs> importance of parasites in chronic GI signs would be great. <laughs> Actually, I just um, thought of another question as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good question because it's, I mean... Uh, to a degree, we always do that because we're too embarrassed to find worms when we do endoscopy. <laughs> um, but, you know, you're probably right. I mean, in, a, in an adult dog, you know, that's fairly regularly dewormed, even if you find a couple of eggs um, on your fecal exam, that's not likely to be the sole cause of chronic intestinal signs. I would say. So um, it's probably still important to know and do something about it and probably talk to the owner about other measures such as, you know, um, prevent recurrence like reinfection and and things like that. Um, But at the end of the day, it's not likely that in an adult dog that's the only cause of it. If we're talking puppies, then that's different, of course. And um, I guess you can get scenarios where you've got a diseased GI tract and I guess largely intestinal tract and then could you get some sort of superimposed secondary infection of various sorts and that's not causative but it's sort of contributing. Um, the other question I had for you, which again is, again, uh, I told you I think at the beginning that there would probably be things that come up. One um, was about helicobacter actually. Um, can we have a little tangent on that? Can yeah, you just sure. Give me the give me an update, I guess, on um, where okay. we reached with the whole. So you're talking story. to a non-believer. <laughs> You'll need to explain to the audience what that means. Um, so Helicobacter um, is something that's very commonly found in healthy dogs and dogs with diarrhea, and it's the same for cats. So that makes it fairly difficult to, um, you know, associate it with any kind of disease. Um, The the problem also um, is to a degree that we're talking different species than what's important in people. In people, we're talking Helicobacter pylori, which is associated with gastric ulceration, and we know that if we eradicate it, then, you know, you're not going to get into trouble as much, at least. Um, that's really that sort of scenario doesn't happen in dogs and cats, so it's really different. Um, we're talking about completely different species, which are not implicated in anything pathogenic in, in people. Um, and you know, as I said, it's actually quite difficult to know um, if it's there whether it causes disease because the prevalence is just as high in, in healthy animals. So the other problem is that the studies that have been done to try and eradicate it and, and correlate it with the vomiting mm. basically going away um, have not been very successful. So the triple therapy which consists of um, two types of antibiotics and um, antacids is taken from people basically. Um, you have to do that for several months and then ideally you should go back and 
intake, intestinal or gastric biopsies to right. see whether it's eradicated. And the few studies that have done that actually have shown that eradication is almost impossible and, with, and the vomiting can go away or not in some. Right. And so therefore it's really difficult to draw any conclusions, but I would dismiss it. It's my <laughs> scientific <laughs> opinion. All right, fantastic. Thank you. Um, so we're going to move on and, and talk about IBD, but um, I guess I just wanted to, to round off the story in terms of our kind of hypothetical patient. That they're clearly based on uh, whether you do or do not achieve a diagnosis. You'll make some recommendations. I guess that the one question I did want to, or two questions I did want to ask you was, one is you've obviously described the approach to work up, um, but what if the client sort of said to you, you know, right from the outset, look, I can't afford to do these things you're talking about doing. What would you suggest would be the kind of minimum response to one of these patients? Yeah, I guess um, that's, that takes us back again to the scenario of um, how far do you want to go with this owner and sort of, you know, set the stage in, in a sense of how much do they want to invest financially and also commitment-wise. Um, if they really have no resources whatsoever, um, then... Um, you know, one of the things that I do quite commonly with or without workup is actually dietary exclusion. Mm. And so that would be mm -hmm. one thing that I would probably recommend then. That can be relatively expensive as well, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but there's actually nice studies now um, coming out of the REC as well, which show that at least two-thirds of all dogs that show, um, show up in practice or in, in referral practice with signs of chronic diarrhea will respond to diet alone. And actually most of those, over 90% of them, after um, having been on an exclusion di diet for about 8 to 12 weeks, can be switched back to their normal diet and they'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And they'll be more fine or better if they're younger. So the, the earlier you start, the better um, the prognosis is, basically. So that's always something that you can do, I think. And what's the um, what's the sort of underlying sort of pathophysiology there? Is it dietary <laughs> hypersensitivity, or again, this is an area that I'm really unfamiliar yeah. with. But yeah. um, like, do well, we know? Or? Um, I mean, that brings us to the general, you know, sort of hypothesis of pathogenesis for IBD, because some people will actually say that food responsive disease of sort is one subcategory of IBD. Okay. Um, some people will say IBD is only the ones that need steroids. Depends what you read. But I don't think it matters in the end. Um, what you need to know is that histopathology will look the same, whether they respond to diet okay. or steroids or okay. something else. And so, therefore, just looking at the histology won't tell you. So you will still have to go with the sequential treatment protocol, basically. Okay, excellent. And... Um, <clears throat> I'm going to have to ask you this because I think it's important that we touch about we touch on it, and then we want to talk about ID. I guess it would be wrong, especially in this day and age, um, to not mention antibiotics and their mm -hmm. sort of rational use, really. Yeah. And I guess if I took the position that you're presenting one of these patients and you should not give them empirical antibiotics, would you mm -hmm. agree or disagree with that? That's yeah, that's a, asking the question. that's a very difficult question, absolutely. <laughs> um, and it's one that we've been discussing recently um, quite a bit, actually, um, Instead of you know people who who study gastroenterology um, um, in dogs and cats and and one of the things that I think we really don't have a good handle on is this disease called antibiotic responsive diarrhea. Um, you know, probably 20 years back it was it was called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth um, mm. based on studies. Um, from culturing intestinal juice, which we now know is completely outdated because you're never going to get more than about really 20... Well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're probably never going to get more than 20% of all bacteria that live there because you don't even know the culture conditions for most. And so these days what you have to do to assess the microbiome, if you want, is actually do genetic analysis of a biopsy or the faeces um, you know, to sort of see what's there and what kind of sequences you can get. Um, but so anyway, the problem really is that, um, you know, previously it, it, there was sort of a defined phenotype of which dogs might be responding better to antibiotics. And the classic is obviously the young German Shepherd dog, but then there's probably some others out there as well that do that, just if you try. Um, and the, the classic approach was to give him oxytetracycline, which we don't do anymore because of side effects. Um, and then it switched to um, antibiotics such as metronidazole, which we still use quite a bit, and tylosin, which we don't do, but other people do. Um, tylosin is really 
really difficult to prescribe here um, because of the cascade and because it's really a poultry medicine, um, <laughs> not so much for, um, for cats and dogs. Um, but these seem to work as well in some cases, um, and the recommendation is to give the antibiotics for about four to six weeks and then see whether they're okay without giving it. Now, the problem really is with the studies that, that have recently come out on um, subtypes or subgroups of IBD, looking at antibiotic-responsive disease versus diet-responsive versus steroid-responsive, the antibiotic-responsive ones actually are the ones that I think we don't have a good handle on because what happens is that you give the antibiotics they work for the four weeks that you give them and the minute you discontinue them they're back mm. in the office with you because mm. they do really badly and they have really bad flare-ups and so then the problem becomes what do you do with them do you put them back on antibiotics for the rest of it which as you say exactly you know i think the recommendation these days really is not mm. <laughs> um, because of antibiotic resistance problems and everything and also you know do you really want to give something to a dog um, for the rest of it um, if there's potentially other options. And so I do think that's actually you know, a, a group of dogs with chronic diarrhoea that we don't really know how to handle very well just yet. Um, but I guess one thing I take away from all that is that um, we're definitely not talking about, you know, a week of amoxiclav or something. I mean, it, no. it, that's definitely not what we're saying. There may be patients that, that need antibiosis in the sort of background of what you've just discussed, mm. but some sort of Response, which is have some amoxiclav, doesn't make a lot of sense? No, probably not. Um, I mean, you're probably right that amoxiclav is just as good as any of the ones that I um, told you about before. Um, but again, you know, amoxiclav is actually one of the good ones that we have out there for lots <laughs> of diseases. And that, to me, would actually be one of the reasons not to use it in a case like that, because then you still have it if you need it. Cool, excellent. <clears throat> I should just say for, uh, for listeners uh, who are not familiar that amoxiclav is amoxicillin clavulanic acid. Um, okay, cool. Let's move on and talk about IBD. I think we've sort of covered, you know, some of some of the stuff anyway in, in the discussion that we've had already. Um, but I know that you, you know, IBD is sort of uh, an area of interest for you and something that you do do um, a fair amount of research in. So I guess uh, this is probably a challenging question in a way, but maybe not. But can you just summarise for us essentially what IBD is? Um, yeah, um, so IBD is um, the acronym for inflammatory bowel disease, um, which stems from um, people with inflammatory bowel disease, although I think it's actually kind of a misnomer because it really isn't quite the same. Um, neither, okay. you know, what you see clinically nor histopathologically. What you see in histopathology in dogs and cats with IBD is lymphoplasmocytic inflammation in the intestine. Now that, unfortunately, is actually very unspecific and you can see it with lots of diseases. Okay. And so that's where your exclusion diagnosis is really important because okay. you're actually not supposed to um, call anything IBD on the basis of histopath unless you've excluded everything else beforehand. So there's your extensive workup and why it can be um, quite frustrating <laughs> to make the diagnosis in the end. Um, and uh, what was I going to ask you? You said about, so, okay, so, I mean, the, um, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So, in terms of trying to explain to dogs' owners, cats' owners, about what IBD is, and I think um, there was this other thing, you know, uh, irritable bowel syndrome in humans, and I think sometimes people might use that as a way of sort of trying to explain to lay people uh, what IBD is. Um, I get, uh, well, to my knowledge, irritable bowel syndrome is something else, but I don't know if you mm -hmm. know that. But also, like, if you have any tips for how people can explain to clients what IBD is, that would, that would be great. Mm. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, there's always confusion about these things. And IBS means irritable bowel syndrome in people. Um, and actually, the criterion um, to diagnose IBS is really on the basis of normal histopathology. So there you go, that's the difference right okay. there. Um, although I think probably the clinical signs that you can see associated with IBS can be quite similar to what we see in dogs and cats. However, I would say the treatment is quite different. Um, you know, um, we're probably going to talk about this a little bit more later on, but you should really go with sequential um, dietary treatment and then if, it, if they don't respond, possibly steroids or other anti-inflammatory drugs. And that's not really usually necessary in IBS, I think. Um, so it's different probably from pathogenesis as well as um, sort of treatment approaches. 
So I guess one of the challenges we have nowadays with, with the um, with the internet and Dr. Google and his junior junior associates, Dr. Bing and Dr. Yahoo and talk to everybody else, um, is this problem, isn't it, that if you said something like irritable bowel syndrome to an owner and then they went and looked up irritable bowel syndrome in humans, they may draw wrong conclusions. Even from what you're saying, even if they looked up inflammatory bowel disease in humans, they may be on a on the wrong path in a way. So I guess we have this challenge now where there is other sources of information and trying to make sure that, that people are directed to the kind of the right sources of, of information is a, uh, is a challenge. Um, so I guess we have sort of talked about this already, but if you could just very briefly summarize the approach to making the diagnosis of IBD, I think that would be good because it will also allow us to revise our approach to one of these patients. So we'll keep it relatively yeah, brief. But just absolutely. To... So, um, so we've been talking about doing um, fecal parasitology, some blood work, maybe doing cobalamin, TLI, CPLI. Um, and then some imaging, and then at the end of the day, you probably need intestinal biopsy if you, if you haven't found anything up to that point. Um, we usually do them endoscopically. It depends a bit what kind of equipment and facilities you have in practice, whether you want to do that or are able to do it. Um, you can also go for full thickness biopsies. However, if um, one of the clinical signs looks like the, the large intestine could be involved, then that might be a problem because you don't usually get... Um, full thickness biopsies from the colon because of the risks associated with it. Um, and the other problem is that you usually don't get very many biopsies. If you take full thickness biopsies, mm. you, will, you might get three or four um, from the small intestine. And one of the problems with diffuse intestinal diseases such as IBD or intestinal lymphoma is the more biopsies you get, the more... Um, or the easier it gets to actually diagnose it histopathologically. So that's another reason why we do endoscopy. I, um, I, I guess that prompts me to say two things. One is that absolutely, just to reiterate your point, that we would strongly discourage um, people from doing large intestine or full thickness biopsies, <laughs> having seen the consequences in the terms of septic peritonitis mm -hmm. patients and so on. I always say to people, if you find yourself in a position of thinking that you want to do a full thickness biopsy of the large intestine, please stop and call someone and just check <laughs> that it's the right thought. Um, but the other thing was actually when, when the medicine service have scoped patients that are on, on the ECC service for us, absolutely, I'm, I'm often astounded by the number of biopsies that, that are taken. And I think that that point is, is extremely valid as well, that there is this differential. So, um, again, that's a, an interesting thing for people to note. Um, so we've achieved... So basically we're saying that you need to do your exclusions of both extra-intestinal and other gastrointestinal diseases, do some histopathology, achieve consistent histopathological changes that based on everything else you've done, you feel that it's reasonable to call IBD. Does that sound like a yes, fair summary? Yes, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then can you explain kind of what you would consider to be a rational approach to treatment? And I guess, um, you know, I'm also very interested to know, especially in these days of, of evidence-based medicine, what is the evidence available for the recommendations that you're about to make, uh, especially <laughs> as somebody that's very, you know, unclear about all of this stuff. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we've, we've touched upon this approach of sequential therapy several times now. Um, and the idea really is to try and go with the things that have least side effects first. And so um, some type of um, restriction diet, either elimination diet or hydrolyzed diet, is usually the first step. And actually recent research um, shows that, um, from the RVC as well, um, shows that um, quite a lot, probably up to 70% of dogs that are presented with these signs will respond to that. And they respond very quickly. They respond in about two weeks. So if you read um, papers from dermatology, they will always tell you to um, continue with your elimination diet for six to eight weeks at least before you can expect all of the signs to disappear. That's not the case for GI. They respond very quickly if they okay, respond. And so I think that's a good thing because you can tell your owners, look, you only have to try for two weeks. If it doesn't work, then we can move on. But it probably will. That's really interesting. Again, and if that's it does. New, that's new information <laughs> yeah. for me because I guess I'm still harboring the whole, the whole, whole the sort of derm, derm, derm side of it. But also, yeah. um, I meant to ask you this earlier, actually, was we are talking exclusion here, right? So, yeah. so my understanding from before has been water and this diet. Is that true <laughs> or is there... Are there is it, is there flexibility in that or not? Yes. So, <laughs> so exclusion diet in itself basically means a protein that um, the dog or cat hasn't been fed before because the proteins um, are the ones that we think 
elicit some kind of antigen reaction in the end. Um, so most reports that have actually looked at what kind of ingredients they are are the proteins. Um, and so if you have a, a dietary history that is detailed enough to actually come up with what they haven't been fed, then you can go with an exclusion diet. Most people these days will, um, will go with a hydrolyzed diet, and there's some evidence that they work the same just as well. Um, you know, either or you can, you can choose dietary exclusion or hydrolyzed diet. And what's the, this, this is a technical question, but what's the hydrolysis achieving? <laughs> yeah, that's, it's a, that's a good question because that really comes from human medicine where, um, you know, sort of newborns can have cow milk allergies quite badly sometimes and, and hydrolyzed diets really have been introduced for this sort of problem specifically. And so um, in these patients that helps or is, is pretty much the only thing that helps. Mm. Um, and the idea behind it really is that that's an actual um, type 1 um, allergy reaction in the gut. Um, so if you uh, basically chop up the proteins um, small enough, then your um, IgEs won't be linked on the mast cells and you won't have mast cell degranulation. Now, obviously going back to dogs and cats, we don't think that um, type 1 hypersensitivity reactions actually happen in dogs and cats. And if you think how they present clinically, you know, it's, it's quite different, isn't it? It's not eating a strawberry and, and dropping dead. <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's much more protected and, mm. and long term. Mm. And so it's probably not that. And so therefore, it's actually quite difficult to explain why and how they work. But they do. Fair enough. <laughs> Excellent. And so, so the, the diet's the, the first thing, and then what's the next step in our sequential approach? Yeah, so, um, so if diet doesn't work, and again, you know, you only have to give it for about two weeks to figure that out. Um, so hopefully your owners will still be on board after that. Um, and then one of the things you could do is, is try with antibiotics, although, you know, as we said, that's difficult because that will set you up to then later on have to decide what to do with that patient. Yeah. Are you going to keep them on or not? Um, or then um, you have to think about immunosuppressives eventually. Um, and steroids are definitely one of the things you can try. Um, there's papers that show that only about 50% of patients will long-term be good on steroids, meaning that once you taper them down, they'll either have a recurrence or even beforehand they'll have problems because of side effects. So it's an option, but it's not the greatest one. But it's cheap, so you know, and it will work for some. Um, and then there's other options, such as, for example, cyclosporine, which is obviously a lot more expensive, but has actually shown to have um, a, a really good effect in about 80% of patients um, that have been looked at in one study at least, where there was really good long-term success. So those were treated for about 10 weeks and then were stopped As and have never therapy, come back. So no basically. steroids, just cyclosporine? Just cyclosporine, okay. exactly. Um, and actually most of those dogs um, in that single study had had steroids before and they were steroid resistant so they had either had a relapse or never responded to steroids before so that's definitely an option Interesting. and um just quickly go back to the diet thing uh, the hydrolyzed diet so they are they commercial only there's nothing there's no sort of home versions of hydrolyzed diets. It's commercial brands. <laughs> hydrolyzed you can't do, um, but, but you can do an elimination diet, of course. You can, um, you can certainly feed at home, home-cooked. Um, in, in a retrospective study that we've done um, just recently, um, looking at 203 dogs over six years, we have found, I think, about 70% um, of dogs that were diet-responsive of these so about 160 or so. Of these, um, probably only, let me think, two dogs, I think, were on home-cooked diet. Right. And that's probably because we have a system where we send them to Dan Chan, our nutritionist, if they really insist on that, to make sure that they feed a balanced diet over 10 to 12 weeks, and they don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's complicated and yeah. it's expensive and it takes a lot of time and depending on how big your dog is it's actually not easy to do yeah. and so um, in my mind actually most people will eventually decide on let's just feed the, the bag yeah, <laughs> um, and excellent so I guess uh, when we were talking about this we got to the cyclosporin bit of the, the treatments and um, what, in terms of the evidence that we have and the, stu the studies that you've referred to already, 
Where do you feel we are at with that in terms of, you know, if you were making an assessment of how good the evidence was? And I guess that will then also lead us nicely into talking about what research that, that you guys are doing at the mm-hmm. moment anyway. But so sort of what sort of study, you know, like in this day and age of pyramid of evidence and all that kind of stuff that we won't go into. Um, where do you feel we're at with the evidence base? Are there other therapies beyond cyclosporin that are being evaluated? And then we could talk about what research you guys are doing as well. That'd be great. Um, yeah, I mean, it's one of the problems, really, because I don't think that there's many treatment trials out there that, you know, have, have been set up the way they should, you know, with um, sort of placebo-controlled or at least controlled with, you know, some standard ter- therapy that you usually do. Um, and there's certainly a lot um, a lot of new medications coming out on the human market that we could trial eventually. Um, but it's, it's hard to do clinical trials, and so mm. I, I'm guessing that's why we don't have that much information yet. Um, but, you know, I, I think one of the things that's really intriguing is to think about you know, going back to the pathogenesis of IBD, and that's probably to do with the interaction of the intestinal bacterial load or microbiome and the intestinal immune system. And somehow the intestinal immune system um, takes the commensals that are usually there as pathogens and makes wrong decisions, and basically that leads to an inflammation that usually isn't there. And so um, what we've been looking at recently is sort of the genetics behind some of the breeds that we see more commonly like the German Shepherds and we found mutations in some of the receptors that recognize bacteria in the intestine so that makes complete sense and and it's quite similar to what they found in people with IBD as well so there is some overlapping pathogenesis at least um, even if it doesn't manifest exactly the same clinically. Um, and so I think, you know, some of the, the newer medications that are coming on to clinical trials or are even now commercially available in people might become options for some dogs. What I believe in is that we have to get better at phenotyping them and possibly also looking more at um, specific breeds because I think they can actually present quite differently and probably have different outcomes. Can you just explain for so, the listeners when you say phenotyping them? Yeah, so... so um, you know, trying to be very clear what kind of subgroup of IBD okay. you're looking at. So mm-hmm. I think, for example, you know, if, if you take the subgroup of um, IBD that will respond to diet, they're mostly younger dogs. They, they're usually okay. less clinically affected and less severely affected. Um, and so these sort of things probably make a big difference if you um, do clinical trials. And what they do in people these days is actually try and um, stratify the groups much more and be very consistent in what kind of um, uh, what kind of patients you include onto a specific trial so that you can make best recommendations in the end. I think it's one of the problems we have with a disease that's really a bag of diseases like IBD right. where you have so many different clinical forms um, and then make a recommendation on a trial of like 12 patients. I yeah. think that's yeah. really difficult because yeah. there's going to be a lot of variability. So um, so it's sort of an umbrella term yeah. but that covers a bunch of subsets. Yeah. And, and I guess that sort of with the sample size thing, I suppose that mm-hmm. almost makes it even more challenging because if yeah. we're saying we want decent sample sizes for yeah. each subset, yeah, and absolutely. we've got an even bigger, an even bigger issue on our yes, hands. Yes, that would be the perfect thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting. Um, and actually... Um, I guess like one of the things I said at the introduction was that you are the head of the, the Clinical Investigation Centre here. And just as we wrap up the podcast, um, actually, yeah, I lied about that. There's another question. <laughs> Let's do my other question first, and then okay. we'll come back to the CIC. Um, what, one of the things I'm very um, aware of is that we've talked about dogs today, and that was sort of intentional, really. And you mentioned cats a couple of times. But I guess I, I, it would be wrong to not just sort of finish with a, a question that, of all the things we've talked about today... Um, if I had said, well, let's talk mostly about cats instead, would, would the things you have said been generally quite similar or were there, are there some sort of notable differences that people need to be aware of between cats and dogs? Um, yeah, I, one thing we already said about the cobalamin, actually, cats with chronic intestinal disease um, have a very high prevalence of hypocobalaminemia. So one of the things that I always do with all cats, whether I have a cobalamin level or not, is supplement them. So that's probably one thing. The other thing is that um, cats have this... Um, 
small intestinal small cell lymphoma, which doesn't happen really in, in dogs. Um, and it can be an, a challenge to diagnose because it can look quite similar in histopathology than severe IBD. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that can be a little bit of a, of a tricky situation because um, lymphoma obviously potentially has a poor prognosis. However, I guess one of the things to keep in mind with small intestinal um, small cell lymphoma in cats is that the prognosis actually seems to be better than what we thought with intestinal lymphoma. There, there's a few reports that show that they can survive up to three years. Okay. So, and the treatment also can be quite similar than with IBD. So we might not have to worry about it too much in the end. <laughs> Um, but so, so otherwise, the general kind of approach and general principles are, are pretty similar? Yeah, it's yeah. pretty similar, absolutely. And it's also an exclusion diagnosis. Okay, awesome. Um, and the thing that we won't touch on, but hopefully is one day in the future, is I want to talk about triaditis and, and all of that, <laughs> and what that means and all of that, because that's a fascinating, a fascinating thing. So I guess, um, you know, we, we, we sort of, the minds of people like me go to that whenever I hear IBD in cats and was like, oh, triaditis, I need to think about that. So, uh, but we, we, won't, we won't go there now. Um, so I just wanted to, it wasn't really planned, but I guess it would be interesting to just hear a little bit summary about the Clinical Investigation Centre here and what, you know, given that you are the head, it seems a shame <laughs> to miss the opportunity to have you here and not ask you about uh, I guess a little bit of a summary of, of our CIC centre. It seems to me, having been in and out of the RVC for 12 years now, I think it is, um, that that's something that wasn't here when I first started. Yeah. It, was, it was created subsequently, and as far as I can tell, continues to go from strength to strength, but I might be, I might be wrong about that. So if you could just give us a, a summary of the CIC centre, that would be great. Yeah, the CIC was basically funded just about, I think, 12 years ago, and um, mainly for the purpose of supporting clinicians in their clinical research studies um, so trying to get samples um, you know as fast as possible into the minus 80 um, getting them labeled getting excel sheets done um, that was sort of the start of it um, and it's now developed into a much bigger endeavor if you will um, and it's and it's now um, not just doing that um, and also having archives of all types of biopsies um, and samples um, from dogs and cats coming through the clinics but also from the bowmones. Um, uh, but it's also supporting commercial studies. So sometimes um, commercial partners um, will approach us and will say we're really interested in exploiting your caseload um, and doing clinical trials and we will try and match that with interests from cl- um, clinicians, academics who work with us um, and will um, basically perform clinical trials for them and that's to, um, to the highest standards really to what they do in people as well for clinical trials um, ethically approved, also by the Home Office approved, obviously with client consent and all of that um, and we have some really um, very good studies that have come out of that, sort of collaborative cool. studies as well. Cool. And um, I guess one of the things you, you just mentioned it there, uh, just in case anybody starts to worry, that um, when you were saying about having you know, a, a sort of storing of samples and stuff, these are all samples that have been acquired with consent, right? They're not... Absolutely, not us, yes. Just You're absolutely the right. The scandal in human yeah. medicine that you hear about. No, in the no, news, no. You're like, well. um, we're very open about you mm. know these sort of um, clinical research things going on at the at the QMH, and um, every owner is informed um, and will give consent or not. And if they don't give consent, then we don't take any samples, yeah. obviously, for research. Fantastic. Um, I think we're, we're kind of done, but before, before I wrap it up, was there anything else that you wanted to say, or do you feel like we've, we've covered all the crucial stuff? I think we have. Um, I'm sure I, I there's guess, some burning yeah. questions that I've overlooked. But <laughs> <laughs> all right, excellent. And um, actually, you know, one of the things that we were talking about before we started was um, the challenges in podcasts like this to keep the information updated and up-to-date. Mm-hmm. And um, I always say to people that one of the opportunities we do have is that if people that have appeared on the podcast if suddenly something really dramatic occurs and they're like, oh, I need to, I need to update what I said to, to on the podcast or whatever, that, that, you know, we can always do that. So I guess if there's any, ever anything new that you feel that you'd like to, to add to this podcast, um, we can certainly come back and do that. And, and I think we've already touched on a couple of other things that after I've given you a respite for a while, we might come back and, and talk about. Um, so to the listeners, as always, then, do feel free to get in touch and provide your feedback uh, in the usual ways. And also, as always, let me know if there are any clinical topics that you would really like um, a podcast on. So you can email me directly at sjasani at rvc.ac.uk. 
you can go to the RBC's Facebook page and there's an album there that contains information um, about the podcast and links to them. Or as always, you can tweet at Royal Vet College and use the hashtag SAClinPod. And until next time, then do take care of yourselves. Bye bye.